All right, Team Pella, listen up. Thanks, Jan Kuhn. Customers love our products with limited lifetime warranties. Check out these big plays. Incredible innovations like blinds and shades between the glass. No interference on that play, Coach. And stylish windows with hidden screens that make game days a breeze. Can it get any better? It can. With monthly payments as low as $19 per window, $75 per patio door, and a free quote at PellaWI.com. Let's go. 6.99 Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Yeah, see, you do want to tune in on our YouTube channel today. You can either watch us on WTMJ.com, click the Watch Live button, or YouTube TV and put in WTMJ, because you can start a speculation as these giant bags that are under my eyes, where exactly do they come from? You know, that it's, it now, it, it, it is in fact that I went to the baseball games the last two nights. We stay till the end. The parking lot, and it, this is this is a good problem to have. Matter of fact, the end of the Tampa Brave Raves a uh, raise. Vince, I don't know if you saw this. For the playoffs, they drew nineteen thousand and twenty thousand people. They had a home playoff games. They drew nineteen and twenty thousand people. It's disgraceful. It's embarrassing. I mean, I don't know if they're just not interested in baseball there, or if that's a terrible place to watch baseball. Their home stadium, yes, nobody yes. likes it. Tropicana Field, right? I think it's still named after, right? Still call it the Trop. Terrible place to watch baseball. Hard to Man get Arnold, to. Our general manager. Came from there, and he just said, man, it's tough when you have right. only a few thousand people there during the regular season, and you can't come close to filling the place for the playoffs. Right, 19,000. So, I mean, in contrast, the last two nights at American Family Field, there's been like 40,000 people. I think the fans were, were into it. Now, the only problem with 40,000 people is that, um, well, getting out when everybody or almost everybody stays till the end of the game, it, it's kind of a cluster. And then, of course, they have the wisdom of closing the freeway if you're going northbound at 10 o'clock at night. So you have to figure out alternative routes. So that that's part of the reasons why I have the bags under my eyes. Also, for some reason, I thought it was a good idea to schedule a meeting with an attorney, we uh, the, the guy who handles our, our trusts and estates and things like that. And I just I had some questions and needed to update a trust plan. So I, I thought 8.45 this morning, that would be a good time for that. Man, and knowing you as I do, I don't know that 8.45 is a good time for anything. Well, I mean, exactly. You, when, well, when I was on TV and you had to do the early morning with us every now it. and then, when we bothered it. you for right. it. Hated it. Well, see, and, but 8.45 at the lawyer's office means I, I'm up at 5 in the morning. Look, and I know people get up at 5 in the morning. I know I'm, I have no sympathy from your schedule, but it's not my schedule. So it means you got to get up at 5 in the morning to prep for for the radio show because then you got to go meet with a lawyer and then you got to come back and do the other stuff and then get here so just check it out these are these are legitimately earned bags under my eyes there's no I, question I about it i wouldn't have said anything jeff i, I understand because you're, you're that, that guy. <laughs> you are that kind of guy well um a lot of ground to cover on today's program let's um let's start with just a, a few moments of, of commiserating um i, I as a matter of fact i, I know a number of you who were there last night listened to the program because a lot of people came up to me at the ball game. It was um, very, very disappointing, I guess. That, that's that's my reaction. And this is from my perspective. I attend 20 or 25 games a, a year. Uh, this year's team, I think the regular season, they outperformed. If you would have asked me at the beginning of the year, do, do you think that they're going to go 500? I would have said, well, maybe. And, and they ended up winning 92 games, and so that, that was good. There were some exciting stretches, but it's very clear all during the year that this was a deeply flawed team that you know would go through stretches where they just flat out could not score runs, 
and if the pitching couldn't limit teams to just a couple runs, they, they just weren't going to win. And you saw that play out the last two nights. You know, the Brewers started off with a three to nothing lead two nights ago. Last night they took a one, a two to nothing lead and then they just, they couldn't add on to it and they end up, you know, out of the playoffs. And it, I think there was a sense of frustration among the, the crowd. And I, I do, I will say, you know, one of the reactions is a long-standing Brewers fan. On the one hand, you're thrilled that the team made the playoffs. There's no question about it. But this is, what, the fifth year in a row that they haven't been able to advance past the first series. And, you know, when you win the Central Division title, you win 92 games, and you can't win even one game at home. That I don't know if that that tells you something about the direction of the team. And now you've got questions about whether or not Craig Council is going to return as manager. You've got a number of their star players that are under contract or arbitration eligible. The team can control them for one more year. So this is an off season where you decide, okay, what do you do with Willie Adamas? What do you do with Corbin Burns? What do you do with Brandon Woodruff? You know, what which players? that you brought in to kind of patchwork this thing together? Which players do you bring back? Which players do you bring up? You know, do you rebuild? What exactly should be the goals? And one of the things that was really struck, that really struck me as I was at the stadium for the last two nights is, first of all, unlike Tampa, like we were talking about before, this, I think Milwaukee is a great baseball town. I mean, the the place was was packed. Were there a couple empty seats and maybe a little bit of standing room? Yeah, but they they drew like forty thousand people. You know, both nights. That that's the, the stadium capacity is like forty one seven. So it, it was for all intents and purposes filled. The other thing that really I, I got a kick out of was you know people were in general in a very very good mood. People were spending money. I mean, that's like a little city. And you look at you know look at how well the beer vendors were doing and the people that sell the hot dogs and the nachos and the people that sell the programs and the ushers. I mean, the brewers really do, one way or another, employ a ton of people. And I'm sure every single one of them would have loved the opportunity to have one or two or three more games, even if they don't advance to the, you know, the championship level. And the, the team just kind of underperformed. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, I, I understand that not everybody that listens to this program are baseball fans, but I do believe that is certainly in having the Brewers do well is in the, in the interest of the community. If you're a baseball fan, obviously you want your team to do well. If, even if you're not a baseball fan, though, trust me, the economic value, the things that are, are are generated by those of us who are baseball fans going to the games and having fun and buying all those things and employing all the people that the Brewers do, that's a very, very good and positive thing as well. Your reaction on the abrupt end to the 2023 season. Where do the Brewers go from here? Are they a team on the rise? Are they a team on the decline? Do they need to blow it up and try to start over again? Or do we say, okay, look, our goal is let's try to make the playoffs and see what happens. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. One segment on sports. This is Jeff Wagner. What do you think about what happened yesterday and what happened over the last several months? Well, the Brewer season came to a crashing end yesterday, sending 
Well, a ton of disappointed people home. Jeff, the offense did exactly what the regular season predicted. They scored a few runs, but they didn't have the explosiveness required to overcome the Diamondbacks' run. We had a guy with a 156 batting average in the lineup. Pitching got us there. Couldn't carry us through the entire playoffs. That's why we play multiple playoff games. Teams with weaknesses um, find a way out. Ours was offense. It just so happens it only took two games. Um couple other people talking about that. Jeff, winning the World Series is a difficult thing to do. Top two teams, NFL and the National League, or the Dodgers and the Braves. So many division championships, not any world championships. Um, Jeff, what happened to the Brewers is what I expected. The lost series in Arizona earlier in the season, not surprisingly, it happened again. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff, the... Um, I expected a win around uh, this round and lose the next round against the Dodgers. I don't think we can compete with the Phillies, the Braves, the Dodgers. Good to win the division, but disappointing to get swept. I, yeah, I, I really thought, I thought that they were, were were going to win this series, or at the very least, I, I fully expected to be back at the ball game tonight. I mean, my my hope in, like I say, my my very close friend drove back from Virginia. And, you know, I, I, we were we were thinking, OK, here's what's probably going to happen. We think maybe they can win this series. Maybe it's going to take three games. We'll go three games there. They'll go to L.A. and then they'll play a game or two, you know, next week. You know, we were looking forward, forward to being a, a really great, you know, sports weekend, sports week or whatever. On the way back, Evan says, well, can I stay for another day or so? I say, yeah, you can stay as long as you want. But but, yeah, we were planning to see a lot more baseball and it kind of ended abruptly. Jeff, I think the owner needs to decide if he wants to put more money into the team, and if not, he should sell it to someone who will. See, that's an that's an interesting thought because if you look at the NBA and you look at the owners of the Bucks, there is no question. Now, the owners from the Bucks very little ties to you know Milwaukee, but what they've done is they've made the decision. They, you know, you're talking about New York investment brokers. And so they've got a lot of money and they decided we want to own a a team that is going to win the world championship. And we're willing to put the money into that team to accomplish that. That's why, you know, we'll pay Giannis however much money Giannis wants and how much, however much money we can pay him. You know, we'll, we'll make these various trades. We will exceed the salary cap. We will, you know, pay the luxury tax. We'll do all this stuff because we want to win a world championship. Why? Because if you win a world championship, even if you lose money in a given year, they understand that the ultimate payoff for a team is when you sell it down down the road. And if you look at the value of the Brewers, the value of the Brewers has increased exponentially since this ownership group bought it. Um, the value of the Bucks has increased exponentially since the Bucks ownership uh, brought it. But you you have the the Bucks owners who even if they might lose money in a given year, and my guess is they do, they understand that by investing the money they are, they are enhancing the value of the franchise. And I understand, you know, there's a difference. And I also understand that simply throwing money at a situation doesn't solve the problem. I mean, look at the New York Yankees. Look at the New York Mets. I mean, look at the San Diego Padres. They, I mean, they threw a ton of money at situations, and they're, they're much worse than the Brewers are. But I guess the question becomes, at some point in time, do you have to make a decision where you say, look, we've got a limited window of opportunity with the core players we have, and and we're going to go for it. And, and maybe that means 
we're, we're not going to try to do reclamation projects or things like that. We're going to try to put up the, the best lineup that we possibly can. And if that means that we have to, I don't know, break the bank for a year or two in an effort to do it, we're going to try to do it. We'll be smart about it, but we're going to you know, try to do it. And I, I think that's what part of the frustration is. You have a team that, with the exception of the season before last, you know, has consistently made it into the playoffs. That that's that's great. I remember I remember the years. Look, I've been a Brewers fan since the nineteen seventies, so I remember these years where the, the teams were just awful and they were out of the competition by Memorial Day and things like that, and they had no chance. So I think it's great that you have a team that can win ninety games. But at some point in time, don't you have to make a decision to say, look, what we're going to try to do. All right, we want to take that next step to try to deliver a championship. The Brewers have never won a championship. The Brewers have been to the World Series one time, and that was in 1982. So that's part of the the frustration that's out there. They, They produce a good product. They do well with what they have. But I don't think anybody seriously thinks that they're going to be able to compete to win the World Series. And at the end of the day, isn't isn't that what it's all about. And you do have a window of opportunity, but unless you're going to completely regear, that window of opportunity is starting to close. And with the Bucks, they understand that, you know, right now they've got a window of opportunity. You've got uh, Middleton, you've got Giannis, you've got Brooke Lopez. Those people are tied up for a couple more years. And, but because of their age, because of the money, all those things, you know, you, you figure you can get a couple more years, but that's the window. So what do they do? They go out and they make this big trade for Damian Lillard because they think that's the piece that needs to get them over the top to help win the NBA championship this year, maybe next year, maybe a year after that. They're doing that. I think these are some of the serious conversations that the Brewers ownership has to have, period. All right. When we come back. Sorry, kid, you've got to take the test. I'll explain. We'll discuss. So very glad to have you with us today. All right. During COVID, we did a number of things that were justified because, well, it's COVID. We've got the pandemic. We've got all this stuff going on. And and then a lot of people said, all right, well, now COVID is over, the pandemic is over, but let's keep doing things certain ways. I mean, the most obvious example of that is the, the remote work. You know, for the pandemic, people were forced to work remotely. After that, people wanted to continue to work remotely. And there's been this ongoing problem. We've got employers who are now trying to force employees back into the office, and a lot of employees are rebelling with that. So that, that's the tension. One of the other things that happened during the pandemic in Wisconsin is the Department of Motor Vehicles decided to waive the road test requirement for new drivers. Now, the way it used to work is that if you were 16 or 17 years old, as a condition of getting your driver's license, you had to pass the dreaded road test, you know, that involved parallel parking and all those sort of things. I mean, I've told this story before. I mean, I still remember distinctly, I wanted my driver's license the day I turned 16. So the day I turned 16, I had taken driver's license, my driver's um, ed. My parents had given me private, private driver's ed. Of course, it's a Christmas gift. I'd taken it um, the morning of my birthday in May. My dad takes me over to the DMV office that I think it's still there on, on Mill Road in Glendale. And I took the driving test and miracle of miracles, I passed the driver's test. 
got my driver's license the day I turned 16 and have had it ever since then. So I, I remember how cool that was. Well, anyhow, because DMVs were, if not closed, they were operating in very, very limited capacities. The State Department of Motor Vehicles take, took this policy that starting in May of 2020, it would not be necessary for 16 or 17-year-olds to actually take a road test. Now, there were some requirements. First of all, they had to have gone to driver's ed. They had to have completed driver's training education. They have had to have had a learner's permit for at least six months. Um, They had to have completed 50 hours of supervised driving with their parent. So, I mean, mom or dad are supposed to drive around. Of course, that's not... There's no way of verifying that, so mom or dad have to sign off on that. And mom or dad, parent or guardian, would have had had to agree to waive the road test. So, in other words, 16 years old, you've completed your driver's ed class, you've done presumably the -the on-the-road training with mom or dad. Mom or dad could waive that. They could sign off to waive it. Now, we we talked a lot about that at, at the time, about whether or not that was a good idea, but it has been in effect since May of of 2020. The Department of Motor Vehicles made the decision that they were going to continue that program when it would normally have been ready to expire. And so it has been in effect since May of 2020. That program cannot continue, though, beyond the end of this year, December 31st, without legislative approval. And the legislature has not signed off on it. So the story is, effective January 1st of next year, you know, two, three months from now, what's going to happen is if you want to, if you're 16 or 17 years old and you want to get a driver's license, you're going to have to do it the old-fashioned way. You're going to have to earn it by having a driver's, by going to the DMV and getting the road test. Um, Appointments for a road test can be scheduled 11 weeks in advance. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, one of the things that the DMV says is, look, these driver's tests, the in-person tests, really are, are, they don't want to use the word worthless, but I'm going to use the word worthless. They say, look, the, the vast majority of people pass. You know, the pass rate is like 90 or is like 90%. And if you look at the people that pass after maybe you flunk it the first time, but then you go and you you take a retest, like 95% of the people pass this. So the argument is we're spending a lot of time road testing people who are going to pass nonetheless. So as a result, you know, why do we spend all these resources making kids go through their driver's ed testing? 855-616-1620. We've been doing it for the last couple of years. The Department of Motor Vehicles says they don't believe that statistically there's been any greater number of accidents, collisions attributed to people who got their license this way than people who got the license the old-fashioned way. Is this is this a relic of the 1970s? Do we need or should we continue road testing for 16 and 17-year-olds? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment.
Jeff, my husband was a driver's instructor for a couple of years and, quote, used his brake often. He could always tell which kids were allowed to drive practice between lessons. Those are the kids to worry about on the road. Yeah, there's no question about that. And look, and I understand also there's there's a lot of bad drivers that are out there. And I understand that sometimes when I talk about proposals, look, I'm the guy who thinks it's a good idea to road test people, you know, when their licenses are coming up for renewal after they hit like 80 or whatever. And I know that's very, very controversial. But the, the, the idea is, and I also, by the way, I get it that there's a lot of people we were talking about yesterday. You've got thousands. Thousands of people who are out there on the road driving without licenses, revoked licenses, suspended licenses. And I agree that they are a bigger problem than maybe the, you know, X number of kids who perhaps shouldn't have had a license in the first place who were signed off on because of their parents. So I understand there's bigger problems out there, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily don't do the road tests. Hey, if you want to watch the Wisconsin football game this weekend, good luck. This is this is the new world of streaming. You know, it used to be that if you, you know, if you were going to watch say college football games or other sorts of sporting events as well, it was it was kind of easy, you know. ABC has the Big 10 games and, you know, CBS has the SEC games or or whatever, and you'd have a, a rough idea as to where you could go to watch different games. Well, you know, no more because we live in the world of streaming. So here's the deal. What ended up happening is the as part of the, these deals, um, more and the Big Ten media rights have been sold off in different agreements with NBC, CBS, and Fox that went into effect this season. So what that means is if you want to watch Wisconsin play Rutgers this weekend, it's not on broadcast TV. It's not on cable TV. So it's not like on ESPN or the Big Ten Network. It's only being streamed on Peacock. Now, I happen to like Peacock. I have Peacock. It, Peacock is like the NBC streaming version, and, and I have it for a number of reasons. There's all sorts of shows I watch on it. Um, Peacock is the one they have if you watch English Premier League soccer. They, they, they've got that. But Peacock is the exclusive provider of of the Wisconsin football game this weekend, just like they'll be the exclusive provider of a couple basketball games and some other football games not involving Wisconsin over the course of the year. But if you're planning to watch the Badgers game this weekend, what you have to do is you have to either have Peacock, and it's like six bucks a month to sign up, or alternatively, you have to go find an establishment that that, that streams Peacock. Now, I, I say that because that's not easy as well. There's a big story in the... Um, Wisconsin State Journal about how for a lot of the sports bars and stuff, I mean, they're used to having direct TV. They're used to having spectrum cable or whatever. And you just go and you say, okay, what channel is the game on here? It's on 31. We'll push 31. Boom. No, you have to go through all sorts of hoops and pay all sorts of extra licensing fees if you're going to sign up for the live streaming thing. So just just a word to the wise. This this is the world we live in now, and it's becoming more and more disjointed. It's not the fact that you can't find sporting events. It's just that you can't figure out where those sporting events are going to be, and you've got to figure out, gee, am I subscribing to the service that has the sporting event that I want? So in any event, if you want to watch Wisconsin play Rutgers in football this weekend, well, either go to the game or alternatively, you're going to have to stream Peacock. Word to the wise. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Yeah, this is an example of what we used to call felony dumb. 
43-year-old Madison man who goes by the name of Taco demanded to see Tony Evers at the Wisconsin State Capitol on Wednesday afternoon and returned later with an assault rifle after posting bail. So here's what happens. Wednesday afternoon, Joshua Plesnick, a.k.a. Taco, arrived at the state capitol shirtless with a leashed dog and wearing a holstered handgun. He came up and he said he wanted to speak to the governor. Huh. You show up with a dog on a leash, not wearing a shirt and carrying a gun. Yeah, that's going to get you into the governor's office. Yeah, come right on in. Let's see what you've got. Hey, folks, welcome here. All right. Upon being interviewed, police Nick said he would continue coming to the Capitol until he spoke with the governor. He said he doesn't own a vehicle and he has access to a large amount of weapons and he is comfortable using them. All right. Felony dumb. Using extreme motion. Okay, so then he's arrested after approaching the security desk outside of Evers' office. Good. Um, he's arrested for openly carrying a firearm inside the Capitol, which is a violation of the law. Okay, so they arrest him. He returns to the state Capitol about 9 p.m. This time, he's got an assault-style rifle. <laughs> he had already, so they, he gets arrested for showing up with the dog, shirtless, and the gun, um, the handgun. He posts bail at the Dane County Jail. He goes home. He gets an assault-style rifle, comes back to the same place, the scene of the crime, demands to see the governor again. He is, of course, arrested before. Um, yeah, again, that's what we call in the trade felony dumb. If you want to see the governor, make a campaign donation or make an appointment. That would be my advice. All right. A lot of stuff coming up in the one o'clock hour of the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the station. So, Greg Matzik, you and I, you and I were both at American Family Field last night. And I couldn't help think of you when, in what was it, the top of the seventh inning, Craig Council makes the decision that he's going to pinch hit with Jesse Winker. And I remember you talking about this before. I, I had a, I just kind of had a feeling that he might have been thinking of Greg Matzik and just waving to you except not using all his fingers. When he made the decision, the same decision he made last night, he made the next night. Late in the game, Jesse Winker is your option to help start a rally in place of Bryce Terang. Uh, I, you, you kind of feel like at some point you're putting the guy in position to fail. He ended up grounding to first base. It feels and like a no win situation. Of course, well, raining yes, down. And, yeah. and once again, and it, look, I can't boo Jesse Winker. Didn't have a good season, but if the manager says, "Hey, we need you here," I'm picking up a bat and I'm going to stand in the batter's box and give it everything I can. He, he's just, he's just done. Right? He just doesn't have anything left in the tank. He did put the ball in play at least. Uh, there was another curious decision. Bases loaded late in the game. Lefty comes in for Arizona. And Council decides to stick with Sal Freelick, a good, talented young rookie, lefty at the plate. He had some right-handed options. That's a tough one because Freelick has been pretty good this season against everybody. Uh, that's a, a tough by-the-book decision. What do you do? Do you go to your bench? Do you stick with the lefty? Again, put the ball in play. Just The Brewers couldn't get that extra hit. They couldn't chase a starter and put enough damage on a starting pitcher in this short series. And and now it doesn't even feel like the postseason happened. Is, no, is that well, weird? I mean, like, it doesn't even feel like no, the Brewers well, were in the postseason. You know, and I, where I, feel, I just feel bad for all the people that work at the ballpark. I mean, I, yesterday and the day before that, there's all this energy, and you've got people that are spending money and having a good time and stuff, and boom, it's it's just it's over. And the truth is... The team, after the first couple innings, was not competitive. I mean, I think that's one of the things that as I'm walking out with the fans, 
that that's people were just kind of frustrated. So, okay, same old Brewers, same thing. They get to the playoffs, but then boom, this happens. Yeah, I think between the third and eighth inning, they had like a couple walks. Right, right. There, there were no hits. I mean, no traffic, well, nothing really. Well, to worry well, right. about. you would think in a playoff atmosphere, you know, once you make the playoffs, if you get ahead three to nothing the first game, two to nothing the second game, you'd think that you got you, you'd either build on that or do something, and they didn't. There was just nothing. That happened, you know, at least, you know, sometimes they'd have some threats, but they were never able to bring anything across. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, a week ago, champagne was popping, Miller Lite was being poured on everybody's back, and cigar smoke wafted through the air in the clubhouse. And last night I'm in there, and all you hear are murmurs and the sound of tape on boxes being packed up, bags with zippers being yeah. zipped, and uh, the sound of... Hands clapping and and hugging, and that was it. I mean, it's it's a ghost town in there now. Okay, so where do they go from here? I mean, obviously, this is an off season with some significant decisions that that need to be made. Um, Corbin Burns, he, he's eligible for one more year of arbitration. I don't get the sense that his relationship with the Brewers is very good. Um, uh, they, you know, they had problems with arbitration last year, so I don't get the sense that he's going to be re-signing if they keep him beyond the next year. Same thing is true with Willie Adonis. Brandon uh, Adonis, Brandon Woodruff, um, I think, wants to stay, and I think they view him as a great teammate, but he's got shoulder problems. You know, what do you do? The Woodruff thing is really interesting because if you are considering per- perhaps moving on from Woodruff in the offseason, it became a little more complicated if you wanted to trade him. But it also likely is now coming back into your wheelhouse to afford him. Because of the injuries that have piled right. up. Burns has been incredibly durable. Right. Absolutely durable over the last couple of years. I, I, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if he weren't dealt at some point, whether it's this offseason, trade deadline. Most likely, I think it's going to be an offseason trade of Corbin Burns. That's my guess. Uh, and Willie Adamas, I, I know the Brewers put a, a pretty sizable deal in front of him, and Willie wanted to wait. Yeah. Um, and they've got developing young players who I think are interesting. We saw a handful of them. To me, the biggest question is with Craig Council. That is the question of the offseason. What will he decide to do? He's going to take a step back. Obviously, the Brewers want him back. You have to look at this like you do with players. There are agents involved. There are negotiations. It's not just, we want Craig back. Craig wants to be back. No, there is certainly a financial element to it as well. He's got kids who are in college playing baseball. He's got a house on Oconomowoc Lake that he loves to spend time at. He loves Wisconsin. I am not ready to say Craig is off to the Mets. I'm not, I'm not going to dot connect because David Stearns is out there. But that doesn't mean I'm 100% sold he'll be the manager of the Brewers next year. Well, right. And 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 if he were to go to the Mets, I was talking about this with some people last night. Well, why would he go to New York, et cetera? Well, the the idea that okay you have first of all they'll, they'll give you as much money as you want and secondly for the first time in your managerial career you don't have to deal with the confines of, of a budget you know if you the, the Mets owner wants to win he he dumped what three hundred million dollars or something this year on a losing team so you get to the chance where you say okay if you want to be a World Series manager the question becomes you know is Milwaukee going back to the World Series with their budgetary constraints and would you go to a team like New York where if you want this player or that player. You want to keep Corbin Burns and you want to keep Willie Adamas, it's no problem because the owner will just open the checkbook and write whatever check it takes. There has to be an appeal to that. Uh, potentially. It, it's just been such a dysfunctional organization yeah. that can spend $300 million, but there's no wins to show for it. Yeah. Versus the Brewers model where they don't have that kind of money to spend, 
but there is yeah. more sustained success over the last six years than ever before in franchise history. So you, you are able to win in Milwaukee. It's just you're doing it a different way. Now, I, I can see the argument that David Stearns helped bring that to Milwaukee. Right. He was a brilliant general manager. He did make mistakes, but he was brilliant overall. And, and now he's in charge with kind of turning the Mets into what they should be, given their payroll. So I, I get the appeal there. But Council also has a daughter in high school in Wisconsin. Yeah. I, I just It is such a significant commitment and grind. I see him at some point being a front office executive, maybe even a general manager. I, I think he's a baseball lifer. I truly believe that. I don't think he's a managerial lifer. Uh, that's just my gut feeling. He remains very competitive, and he also doesn't have to work anymore. Like he, It's really an interesting situation. Uh, yeah. And, of course, if he went to manage the Mets and he wanted to bring Jesse Winker with him, I'm sure they'd say it's okay. I, that'll be an option. Yeah. Uh, right? He will not be a part of the Brewers roster next season. I uh, can't imagine. Uh, t- well, but we, you didn't think he was going to be part of the playoff I, roster I either. I also did not think he would be part of the playoff all roster. Right. Yeah, stay tuned. But anyways, uh, it was great coverage all year. And it's just, it is kind of just... That that's the thing about sports. It is there is the suddenness, you it's know. Abrupt, you, yeah. Right. You have. I mean, people have been following the team since spring training in February, and now, boom! It's just it's over. I know, and and you have to be able to square up the success they've had in the regular season with what has happened in the postseason. And they haven't advanced beyond the first round four years in a row. It's not to mean they aren't successful. It's just been challenging clearing hurdles, and and this is a hurdle they should, in my opinion, have cleared. The Brewers, in my opinion, were a better team than the Diamondbacks, but didn't show it the last couple of nights. When we come back, as long as we're talking about the stadium, $25 million to winterize it. Good idea, bad idea. We'll discuss. So, very glad to have you with us. One more story, sort of from the world of sports. And and the Journal Sentinel has a piece on this, and it's, it's really kind of fascinating. One of... The things that is being talked about in connection with the American family field, the stadium improvements. One of the things that they are looking at doing is spending somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 million. And, and you can, again, could it be 20 million? Could it be 30 million to what they say is winterize American family field? R- right now, there, there are not, there are not winter events at American Family Field because the stadium, while there is some heating, it's not, it's not designed to be operated when it's, it's cold outside. So as a result, you, you don't, essentially from the time the brewer season ends till the time the next brewer season starts, um, the American Family Field isn't used for any sort of large scale events. So the idea is if we would spend 20 to $25 million to, <clears throat> again, winterize it, and this would involve um, new electrics, new warm air handling units, new piping to distribute natural gas, new, you know, all sorts of new stuff. And also what they would have to do is they would have to change entrances so that instead of just having gates that you walk through, they would be like revolving doors. Um, because you, you need that to kind of keep the heat in. And you, you need to have the heat in because otherwise you're going to have problems with the plumbing and stuff like that and comfort levels of people. But they say that for uh, 25, 30 million, whatever this would, would be, they believe that they could keep the ambient temperature at American Field right around 68 degrees, 
which would be enough to stop pipes from freezing. And theoretically, I mean, you know, 68 degrees, that is not an uncomfortable sort of thing. But there is the cost. The question is, if they were to, quote, unquote, winterize it, would would there be enough activities to justify that? Now, I mean, you know, you know that there's all sorts of bands that come and, and they play concerts, right? And, you know, they, for example, during the winter, there's a very active concert season. And just for example, um, Fiserv, you know, Fiserv has lots and lots of concerts that are there and they pack it and they bring, you know, 15, 20,000 people to draw us to some of those bands. Obviously, if you've got performers that can draw 40,000, that would be, that would be a, that would be a great thing to have. The question, though, is, you know, on a cold January night, you know, January 15th of 2025, are you going to be able to attract a band that would come to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and play a concert in the dead of winter at American Family Field? Would people turn up for that? Would the bands come? Is there really enough interest to to draw that? And some people are saying, well, maybe they could go after a Final Four or something. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe they could go after a Final Four. But, again, there's an expense. Would it really be worth it? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Would it be worth it to spend tens of millions of dollars to, quote, unquote, winterize American Family Field with the hope that you could draw larger scale events you know maybe maybe you draw the ncaa basketball finals i don't know now you've got a venue that seats forty thousand people i mean would would that make sense in march you close the roof you try to figure out ways to heat it would it be worth the money or do we just need to recognize that you know we, we have a wonderful facility it's enclosed all those sorts of things but you're, you're not going to get the Rolling Stones playing American Family Field in February in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 855-616-1620. Let's talk about it. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner. What time is it? Um, do you have the time? What time is it? What time is it? Time, time, boom. It's Willard. He got the shot off. Damian Lillard is officially a Milwaukee Buck, and we can get used to this. Lillard, long range three, and it's Listen to it all right here. We are the home of the Milwaukee Bucks, WTMJ. Hi, this is Wayne Larrabee, the voice of Green Bay football. You know, fans count on me to make the right call every time, and I can continue to do that thanks to Summit Eye Care of Wisconsin. When my vision began to drift, my eye doctor said Summit Eye Care was the best place to go. Using the latest adjustable implants, the doctors at Summit were able to fine-tune my vision. In fact, my vision is now the best it's ever been. Summit Eye Care was the right call to help me see all the action on game days. To schedule an appointment at one of their locations, visit SummitIWI. At Annex Wealth Management, we believe every portfolio tells a story. After all, we've analyzed thousands. Some reflect diligence and fortitude. Others, a mishmash of overlapping investments. When Annex reviews your portfolio, we spot what works, what might not, and then provide unbiased suggestions free from sales commissions. Every portfolio tells a story. Let's work on yours. Investment, retirement, tax, and estate planning. As a fee-only fiduciary, that's our story. Head to AnnexWealth.com. It's David Nason from WTMJ's The Fix-It Show here with Chris Mancuso, owner of Accurate Basin Repair. Hi, Chris. Hey, David. 
Courage, honor, and integrity. That is what I brought over to Accurate Basement Repair Team following my 25 years of proud service as a Milwaukee firefighter. This is the same foundation that Accurate is built on. As a home inspector, I trust Accurate Basement Repair for all your basement and waterproofing needs. They're not just good, they're Accurate. accurate. Learn more at AccurateBasementRepair.com. It's David Nason from WTMJ's The Fix-It Show for hair construction. If your septic or mound system needs repair, residential or commercial, contact the team who specializes in them, Hair Construction. They have you covered. The friendly, knowledgeable staff at Hair Construction can guide you from a simple septic pumping all the way through an emergency repair or replacement. For all your septic needs, contact the experts at Hair Construction today, 262-968-2550, or find them online at haircorp.com. That's H-E-R-R-Corp.com. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. And by the way, these numbers, this $25 million or whatever to quote-unquote winterize the stadium, that's that's just the mechanicals. That that's the that's the upgrades that you'd have to do to put in the heating systems and things like that. That doesn't include the operating costs. That that doesn't. There, as far as I know, there's no estimates yet as to what would it cost. Okay, it's it's the middle of January. It's five degrees below zero. You've got a concert coming up on Friday night, and you've got to heat it. Because I mean, you're not going to keep it at 68 degrees all the time, I wouldn't imagine. So you've got to to heat it up to what it takes, or maybe you do keep it at 68 degrees all the time. I kind of doubt that, but you know, there, I don't have an estimate, or at least there's no estimates on what the operating costs are, what it's going to cost to actually to heat the place. This is just the mechanicals to winterize it. All right, but that that doesn't mean it's necessarily not a, a valid idea. What do you think? Does this make sense? Let's start with Bill and Racine. Hi, Bill. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I got to set it back to three, four months ago, the George Strait concert at American Family Field. Right. Uh, tickets, three, four, five hundred dollars a piece. Place was packed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, those are the kinds of people that won't mind coming to a concert with their coats and hats on. Maybe some long underwear if they need it. They don't have to. I'm not talking about 20 below or anything like that. But uh, and there's lots and lots of major acts, country in particular, that will pack the place. They won't just pack Milwaukee. They'll come in from the whole Midwest. Well, what, I guess. But will they come in to play a concert in the dead of winter? I mean, again, you're talking. You're right. Let me see. The George Strait Chris Stapleton concert generated 16, a little over 16 million dollars. But that. I mean, that happened, what was that? Was that in June or whatever? And June, so, June 3rd, June 4th, something like that. Right. Okay, so that that's June. I guess the first question is, is George Strait going to play Milwaukee in, in January? Or is he going to be, if he's on tour, is he going to play essentially outdoors or in a stadium setting there? Or is he more likely to be touring, I don't know, playing in Georgia or playing in Texas or playing in Florida during that period of time? Well, mainly he's in-house uh Los Angeles, Las yeah. Vegas, West Coast most of the time. But uh, if you make it attractive enough and the money's good enough, yeah. and I just asked my granddaughter who went to the concert, her friends paid 300 plus bucks uh, a ticket for their tickets, and yeah. they said, well, we'll go. She, we got winter clothes. We'll go if we have to. <laughs> okay. And short of a blizzard, it should fly. Okay. Well, thanks for calling. I mean, to me, this is... 
this is the hard decision that you have to make. And there, there's lots of questions. First of all, it's not just the mechanicals. It's not just $30 million. It's what's it going to cost to maintain this? I mean, it's it's one thing to put the furnace in your house. It's another thing to, to run, you know, the furnace in your house. And how many thousands of dollars is, is that going to cost? And, and what are the operating expenses going to be? I mean, the other practical question I have is are who who are, are people going to play that venue are are you going to get the performers they're going to play that venue oh we want you to come to Milwaukee in February oh that that's great are we playing Pfizer in front of 20 no we want to put you at American Family Field um it's a you know it, it's a winterized stadium you're thinking okay am I going to uh, will the bands come? And then the other factor is, I, I, and I appreciate what Bill's saying. I mean, if you're a diehard fan, you're going to be a diehard fan. But at the same time, there's a difference between, I don't know, packing the, uh, the amphitheater at Summerfest on a, on a nice June or July night and trying to pack, you know, a stadium and assuming that, okay, because we drew just a, a ton of people for the Morgan Wallen concerts, that means if we bring Morgan Wallen back and we have him playing on a Friday night in the dead of winter, that we're going to have as many of those people come out. Now, maybe maybe that's the case. I am a little bit skeptical. There's just no question about it. Let's talk to James on the south side. James, you're on WTMJ. Hello. How you doing, Jeff? Good. What do you uh, think? What, what about bringing some of the um, things that we have, like at State Fair and that, and maybe even downtown, uh, like these... Uh, um, what you call the word that they have the um, what the heck you want to call it? Like the sports. Sh- it's like sports shows or car shows or things like that. Yeah, car shows, sports shows, uh, and stuff like that. You got plenty of parking around there. You don't have to worry about your cars maybe getting broken in into and stuff like that. There's plenty of room. Uh, you can use that on that field there. Uh, you can you could probably have a, a lot of weekends probably from. Uh, Say probably Thanksgiving or Christmas, all the way end up till when the Brewers play. Uh, op- uh, have opening day there. James, right? they, they, I'm sorry, thank, I didn't mean to cut you off. Thanks for your call. I, if Rick Schlesinger is listening to this, I'm thinking, yeah, we're going to have a giant. We're going to have a flea market. That's what we're going to do at American Family Field. It'll be a flea market or a used car show. I, no, I think the reality is that the the cost associated with a, a major league stadium that's 40,000 people, it, it, it's only going to be used for big events. I mean, it's not like you can just I'm, I'm going to rent out American Family Field for, you know, uh, I, I've got the most popular car show around, but I, I mean, you're not going to attract enough people to, to you know, to, to pay for that. And that's what you have a lot of the other venues that are around here for. Um, so I think if you were going to do that, the only justification would be if you think that you can get, all right, I, you can get the final four. Uh, maybe we can get the final four, or maybe we can get the elite eight, or maybe we can get WrestleMania or something like that. That would that would be the question. And I guess I don't know the answer to that because a lot of times, you know, when you see like WrestleMania at these big venues, they're they're outdoor venues in warmer weather areas. I mean, I don't know, but I don't think you could and should just reject this idea out of hand. But this is one where. I would be putting up this red flag saying, okay, before we make a commitment to spend tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money doing this, let's let's get an honest study out there to really give us an idea as to what the real costs are going to be and what is the likelihood, what acts are we going to bring, not just what acts might we bring in, what's the potential if we add an extra in like six big concerts. Well, yeah, I mean, if th- that's great, but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be able to deliver it. And too much of the stuff that is done around here, 
It's whether it's the estimates of the people that are going to ride the hop or the estimates of the number of people who are going to ride the, the rapid transit bus or whatever it is. They're, they're based more on hope than on reality. And that's one of the problems. Hope is not something that you base a plan on. You've got to have it based in reality. So before you go down this route, I think you know you need to figure out what are the real costs and what realistically is going to happen. Who are the bands that are going to play? What type of bands? How many can you actually schedule? And if it makes economic sense, well, it makes economic sense. I'm a little bit skeptical. Back with more in just a minute, including, all right, if you're in church, should the minister be happy that you're there? I'll explain. Stick around. Number of people are weighing in, making great points on this. Jeff, it's a huge parking lot to plow. Uh, here's a factor. I was kind of alluding to this. Jeff, I was just talking to someone about concert bookings at Chase Field in Phoenix, which is, of course, um, a, a warm weather venue. Uh, they said there aren't many large touring acts in the winter months to choose from, November through March. This year in Phoenix, there's one. Billy Joel, Stevie Nicks playing in December. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the other things in the back of my mind, generally speaking, you have performers, the, the the big acts. They're they're not they're not playing during the winter. I mean, you know, they, they play especially the big acts. You know, they're filling the outdoor venues, but they're doing that during the the summer. Um, so I think that's it. Now, you know, we have one of our texters who says, "Well, you know, it's what's the difference? People come out in the winter and they see Pfizer, They go to Pfizer Forum. Yeah, yes, they 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 do." Pfizer Forum, though, is half the size of American Family Field. So you're talking about, you know, how many tickets can you sell for a particular event? What's going to be the comfort level? And, and how, how much is it going to cost to maintain that comfort level? And I'm not rejecting this out of hand, nor do I think that, that we should, but I think you have to have an honest conversation about what is realistic. And my beef, again, is that too often I don't think we have realistic conversations about this. All right. This headline caught my attention. Republicans seek to shut down world naked bike ride events in Wisconsin after a child's participation. Republican lawmakers are attempting to shut down world naked bike ride events in Wisconsin after local police and prosecutors determined a young girl's photographed participation in the Madison ride this summer did not violate any laws. And um, Republicans are in favor of this. And predictably, Democrats, I guess, are opposed to this. I I want to go back this, you know, every year they have this naked bike ride and they do it all over the country, but they, they do it in Madison. Interestingly, what happened this year is you had you had a child, a girl who they, they think was about 10 years old, naked, who rode in this event. A photo posted to Facebook by the organizers of the event showed the girl facing away from the camera, riding a bike while nude with her buttocks visible. And so then they investigated this and they felt that the the child pornography statutes didn't apply so that there was no prosecution that could come from this. But but I guess the, the larger point to me, I don't know that you need a law about this one way or the other, but I remember thinking this at the time. What kind of parent, what kind of parent allows their 10, 11, 12-year-old daughter to participate in a naked bike ride? when they are then going to be photographed 
And because, I mean, this is out this is out in public, you know. So this isn't, I mean, this isn't somebody surreptitiously putting up a camera and, you know, taking pictures in a girl's locker room or something like this. I mean, this is a 10 or 11 or 12-year-old who, with the blessing of their guardians or their parents, is out riding bicycles naked. Now, I don't, I don't know that there's anything, I don't know what the limits of the criminal law should be and, and how do you... How do you define stuff and how do you draw a line that passes constitutional mustard? But you shouldn't have to do that because any parent with an IQ above plant life should realize it is not a good situation to take your 10 or 11 or 8 or 9-year-old daughter and have them riding publicly on a bicycle through the streets where you've got people that have the potential to, first of all, see them, but secondly, to film them. Because, you know, once that is out there, as we all know from the Internet, boom, you're out there forever. You're going to be the kid that's photographed when you're 11 years old riding happily with mom and dad in the naked bike ride. Huh. What could possibly go wrong with that? Just asking. Okay, let us switch gears. Story um, off of Fox News caught my attention. Now, I, I will be the first to admit, and my pastor would be the first to admit, that... Um, I, I don't I, I don't go to church as often as as I should. I, I understand, um, but I, I do we we do go on, on many occasions, and I don't go every week. A lot of times, it's because I've got I, I play golf on Sundays. That's my honest confession. I play golf on Sunday mornings, but once the golf season winds down, then I start going back to church. So it's and if if I'm going to you know where because of that, well, I'm going to you know where because of that. But I, I enjoy our minister and things like that, and I, I always. I've said this before when it comes to dress codes and things. I, I mean, do I, when I go to church, do I, do I dress out? Do I always put on a suit or things like that? No, I don't. Do I wear blue jeans like I do to, like I'm wearing today? Um, no, I don't wear blue jeans either. In part because I hear my mother's voice in my head saying, Jeff, didn't I raise you better than that? You know, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, go to, you know, church wearing blue jeans. Now, so that's, that's me. So I, I dress kind of that, that business casual sort of thing. That is what I'm comfortable with. When I go to church, I see that there's not everybody who dresses like that. Some people just, I mean, look like they're on the way to the golf course. And that's okay. That, that's none of my business. If, if you're comfortable doing that, that that's fine. I, I get it. So it, I just, I try to do what's right for me. One of the things, though, that I notice from time to time, this has not happened a lot in the church I'm in, but apparently it's happening a lot in other churches. Um, nowadays, we are incapable of going anywhere, it seems, without having a bottle of water or a bottle of soda or a cup of coffee. You know, I mean, ev- everywhere you go, people you know, have to have their coffee with them. They have to have their bottle of water with them, etc., etc. So here's the headline. Minnesota pastor's viral post about papal drinking coffee in church ignores fiery debate. Can we reassess whether Sunday coughing sip, uh, sipping in church really fits? The guy is the, the pastor at this church in, in Minneapolis, and he, he's added, um, you know, here, here's the deal, that apparently what's going on is that a lot of, or at least a number of his parishioners, you know, bring bring coffee. Hey, we're going to stop off at Starbucks on the way to church. We're going to bring Starbucks and sit in the pews, you know, while while we're going through church. Now, some people say, 
What's the big deal? Don't you understand people aren't going to church now anyway? So is if if it takes if they need to carry their to go Starbucks with them to go into church, what's the big deal? Um other people, and I admit I kind of fit into this category, I, I'm just the idea of of bringing a to-go Starbucks or a bottle of water or a, a Diet Coke or whatever, the idea of bringing that into the service for the 45 minutes or the hour that the service is going on a Sunday morning, I just, again, I'm, I'm hearing my mom's voice in my head saying, Jeff, didn't I raise you better than that? But apparently there, there are a lot of people who are doing that. And I'm not talking about babies where you've got the sippy cup or the small children and you're trying to do that to, to keep them quiet. I mean, I'm talking about adults who are deciding, okay, I'm going to stop off. I've got my cup of coffee. I'm going to sit in church and I'm going to sip on it while the service is going on. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. This, this is actually, this has gone viral on this, this issue. Number of people are saying, what's the big deal? Who cares? You're in church. Other people are saying, well, look, you know, if you can't make it 45 minutes or an hour without having your cup of coffee on a Sunday morning, um, you, you, there's, there's something bigger going on. Is it appropriate to essentially, you know, bring, bring coffee in? And if it's okay to bring coffee in, I guess my next question would be, is it okay to bring donuts in? Is it okay to stop off at McDonald's, get yourself the big breakfast, get yourself the, you know, uh, sausage egg McMuffin, eat that in the back? Or is it unreasonable to say, okay, just for that 45 minutes or hour or whatever it is that you are actually in church on a Sunday morning or a Saturday evening, is it unreasonable to say, okay, you don't need to have that that coffee with you? 855-616-1620, we discuss. I am just intrigued by this notion that in today's society, we can't do anything and we can't go anywhere unless we're lugging around bottles of water or cups of coffee or, or whatever. And the story we're talking about is going viral. As some minister, a pastor in Minneapolis started complaining about people who just are, are drinking coffee during the um, during services. And his point is. You know, what, what, why are we doing this? And, you know, can't you at least wait? At the church I go to, uh, people, I, I mean, I don't think they, they, there's not a big sign that says no food or drink in there, but people don't do it. You have a coffee hour afterwards. So you go through the service and then what happens is you go out and then you, you know, you go home or you go out to breakfast or you go socialize at the coffee hour. Chris in Madison. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks Chris. for taking the call. This is a, a great topic. Um, I just uh, wanted to mention that I live in the Madison area, and um, I attend Blackhawk Church, which has grown into three campuses. It is a, a beautiful, beautiful church. Um, they have in the hallway, uh, outside of the, there's four different rooms uh, to view the service. That there's live, there's, a, a, you know, they have different venues. And there's coffee and tea served. Great. You can make your own coffee. You know, in, uh, provide the cups. But, and uh, right, but you're not. But you're not in the church proper, right? You're you're outside no. the church and you're watching it on yeah, video. No, you, no, no, no. You you go into the service. We you can you can choose to go. We always go where the pastor is. Yeah. In the live service, and we bring it right in with us. Um, the, most people do, and he even comments. Everyone got their coffee. Is everyone ready to go? Feeling good. <laughs> Let's get this going, kind of thing. And um, 
think there's a lot of other things in this world to be concerned about church-wise than what somebody might be wearing or drinking. And I do really appreciate what you said about, you know, how to dress. Right. But in my opinion, you know, uh, come as you are. God, God isn't going to judge you when you walk through the pearly gates based on how expensive your suit is. It's going to be on what were your deeds and what was in your heart. Yeah, thanks for calling. And see, and I, don't, I don't say God is going to judge you, but to me, it's a gesture of respect. And, and it, it, it says more about you. Um, the, the idea that, okay, there, there are certain places, and I, I guess I, it's just, I, I hate it that when we dumb down these norms. It seems to me the church is a place where you should go and look, and I, and I understand that I'm not saying that you have to wear a $1,200 suit, but I mean, at least make a little bit of, of an effort, you know, and, and I understand that there's some people out there who are impoverished and they can't do it, but that's not what I'm talking about. We all understand that what I'm discussing here, it's the people who could choose to put on a pair of nice slacks or whatever and choose that, that they're not going to, to do that. And they show up like they're ready to go to the golf course. I guess I kind of feel the same way about this. It's just, I don't know what it says that you can't sit through a, a 45-minute church service without, you know, having to have your cup of coffee there that's with you. Or you're so, one of our texters was saying, well, maybe as a way of raising revenue in the church, what you should do, Jeff, you were talking about American Family Field being the ballpark. Maybe they should have a vendor there. You know, maybe that's one of the jobs that one of the ushers could do, like during the, during the service. You know, you kind of walk up and down, you know, you know, hawking coffee or hawking bottles of water or, hey, get a yeah, beer. We got beer here. You know, I, I and I'm, I'm being facetious with that if my minister is listening. But, you know, I guess, the idea, and again, I'm not talking about kids. I'm getting a couple of texts saying, well, sometimes with little kids, you give them the juice box to keep them quiet. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people like you and me who, okay, you just can't sit through that 45 minutes without having the, the coffee. Um, <laughs> uh, Jeff, um, let's see. Um, our church actually, I go to a non-denominable church in Richfield. Coffee's allowed. It's no big deal. I was raised Catholic and found this church when I was 50 years old. Um, and they, they like it. Um, now in, in certain denominations, there's rules that you're not supposed to have food or drink before X amount of minutes or time before you take the Eucharist. I don't want to go down that route. I, again, I just kind of think it's interesting to me that you, you know, that you have this and, and the people just, just can't get through anything without their coffee. Jeff, as a pastor, there are members of the church I serve who purposely set their coffee out of the way in the church kitchen when they enter the sanctuary. They do that as a sign of respect, and that's a good thing. If someone else brought their coffee into the sanctuary and dropped it during the service because they felt it would help um, pay attention, okay, that that's fine. But again, I, again, I think it's it's more like of a gesture of respect. And I'm I'm hearing my mom in my head say, really, you know, you can't go 45 minutes without you know having a cup of coffee or something like that. I mean, that's and and can you? There's enough distractions. I don't know. Have you ever been sitting in church and you hear the person that's kind of like you know wrapping and unwrapping the throat lozenges or whatever, and you're going to go, I kind of knock it off. I'm trying to listen to what's going on and I'm trying to pay attention. That's annoying enough. Can you just imagine with the, like the sipping of coffee and the inevitable um, spilling and things like that? Jeff, I'm in charge of the coffee hour at our church. We used to have coffee available beforehand for parishioners. But uh, they never cleaned up after themselves. Spilled drinks, cups left behind on the floor, sometimes snack wrappers. Give me a blanking break. I also agree you can wait 45 minutes 
to um, do that. <laughs> that there is there is um, that. Wouldn't it be good to have people have religion and faith in their lives rather than follow some rules? Well, again, it's not it's not a question of okay, this is the rule, etc. It's it's more like why do you feel the necessity to do this? Why do you feel that you have to do this? You can't wait 45 minutes without bringing the coffee in. And, and that's that's my question. I mean, okay, if you're going to do it in church, does that mean you do it anywhere? You're going to a job interview. You bring the Starbucks and you walk in and you put it on the, the counter. Okay, that's you're, you're going to do that. Is there any limitation now on, okay, what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate? Just asking. Point of discussion. Um, back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Boy, the texts are totally rolling in on this one. Jeff, I completely agree with you. I've been going to church my entire life. The past 10 years, bringing food and drink into the the church, the sanctuary during the service has become very common. I find it to be extremely self-serving and disrespectful. I I guess I think it's kind of like disrespectful. And here's the flip. Jeff, you can't cling to old values and practices when institutions are dying. Okay. Well, I guess if... Maybe maybe that says something that that the only way you can get somebody to go in and show in show up at a church service is if they're if they've got a Starbucks that they're bringing with them. <laughs> really, I just I, I admit that maybe I'm sounding like a dinosaur rolling around in the tar pits on this one, but it's just I, I can't imagine. Walk in and it's look, I, I get it. You know, you have coffee beforehand. You, you stop for the, the social hour that they have afterwards and you have coffee. But this idea that I, I'm going to bring takeout stuff, including takeout cups of coffee in because I can't sit and listen to a church service for 45 minutes without sipping on my coffee. I'm sorry. I, I just don't get it. Yes. Yes. You want people at the church. But I mean, show a little respect for the institution. I guess that's the, the that's the bigger point that's out there and i think for a lot of stuff we just we just don't show any respect for these institutions so yeah i'm not i'm going to tell my minister i'm not bringing my yeti full of hot coffee to the eight o'clock eight o'clock service i promise back with more in just a couple minutes this is jeff wagner live from the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show now here's wtmj's jeff wagner good afternoon wisconsin welcome back to the show john mccure if you jinx this if you okay for the, for the first <laughs> I saw time in like on your face when the first time in like forever okay i-43 <laughs> isn't just a nightmare if if when i am driving home going northbound on i-43 in the next 90 minutes if <laughs> as if soon I'm as hitting, i said i yeah. said i probably shouldn't say this but then i gave the traffic i looked at you and yeah. you were shaking your head <laughs> yeah, well, your i think that's the only it, it's it was funny because um the, the last couple of days have been particularly bad because I, I, I drive 43 to get to work. I drive back, and then because I went to the ball game the last couple of weeks that, nights, I drive back home. Oh. You know, pick pick up my buddy, yeah. and we drive to American Family Field. And yeah. then because they've been closing the freeway at 10 o'clock at night, so you have to find alternative oh. routes to get back. It's just a complete and total cluster that bumble. brutal. Well, it, it is. So tonight, my wife, we're going to go out to dinner with my, my buddy who's staying one more night, I think, or two more, as long as he wants to stay. But we're going to go out to dinner, and my, my wife said, where do you want to go? I said, somewhere close. <laughs> not said, on the interstate. Right, That's I, where I, you want to go. Right. I do not want to do... <laughs> she said, well, we could go to this place we like in Wauwatosa. No, I'm not going there, because that means I'm going to have yep. to get back on the interstate, yep. drive through, 
uh, intense traffic. It's just, and you can see where this happens. I mean, when the freeway was just so, when going southbound, just uh, around Silver Spring when it was closed for like yeah. a couple hours when you were in the air. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, just last night, I was exactly where that was. And it, it's going around and the, 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 the two lanes are incredibly narrow. I mean, incredibly narrow. There's no shoulder on either side. And, and you've got this kind of turn and you've got all these big trucks the, that are really probably too wide for the lanes yeah. as it is. And, yeah. and it's just, I mean, I could easily, I easily see where that happened. And then once there is a collision, you can't get emergency vehicles in to clean it up. There's nowhere to go. So you have a fender bender and everything's shut down. The afternoon shows, we do it every day with Debbie in the traffic center. Every day, as you know, because you're driving in it, it is a nightmare. It's almost now where to, if there's only a 20-minute delay, which is a long delay, you feel like you have a good afternoon. It's it's terrible every day. And and it, it's going to continue. I mean, they're, they're just... It, it's going to be this way now that the congestion might move a little bit, yep. you know, as they get stuff done. But it's going to be this way for the next couple of years. And there's there's just nothing you can do about it, I guess. Uh, how about this? I'll do the last 49 minutes of your show. You can get out of here because right now it's good. But we don't know how long that's going to last. Yeah, well, I appreciate the offer. But we'll, 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 we, we, will, we will tough it out. But, yeah, it's just and, – and, of course, it's, it's misery loves company. I, I get it. There's nothing you can do. And I, I do – the DOT learned nothing from the construction that they did, because this was a problem if you were driving south when they did the construction work that went on forever from Milwaukee County down to the state line. This was the same thing. Remember, exactly. John, you had all these different collisions and stuff that would occur. Same thing. And I guess on the one hand, maybe there's nothing you can do, although it would seem to me that where you've got some of these choke points, you've got to be able to figure out a way to be able to get easy access when there is a problem. Yeah, that's the big problem. I mean, what if somebody's hurt? You yeah. can't get vehicles, emergency vehicles in there. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, some people would say, well, the, the answer is you need, and, and people drive way too fast. I see, I don't mean to pick on truck drivers, but I see some of these trucks who are in these really narrow lanes going through these weavy conditions, and they're driving way too fast. And somebody says, well, you need more police there. We can't, you, you can't put, pull, you couldn't pull Where? over. Everybody. Yeah, Where? exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's a free zone because you can't get cops to pull people over unless you're stupid enough to be right behind the police officer yeah. or right in front of the police Slow officer. Slow down, everybody. Just take a breath. Absolutely. Take a breath. Okay. Let us switch gears. Speaking of taking a breath, Joe Biden, let me take you back to candidate Joe Biden. This is when Joe Biden was running to be president of the United States. He promised, he promised that during his administration, there would, quote, not another foot of border wall would be built on his watch. Not another foot of border wall. We are not going to do that. Well, what has happened during the Biden administration to the extent that the border was not out of control before, the border is now completely and totally out of control. They're averaging in some spots, they estimate over 9,000 illegal people illegally coming into the United States a-, a day. And in many cases, there's just no way of stopping them. So, according to a notice posted in the Federal Register yesterday, construction for an additional Several miles of barriers, border walls in the Rio Grande Valley, um, are going to be built. According to a notice posted in the Federal Register Wednesday, construction of the wall will be paid for by using already appropriated funds earmarked for border wall. 
the administration um, does this at a time when a new surge of migrants is straining resources. Um, right now, the border estimates nearly 300,000 encounters in this particular sector between last October and August. Last month, Border Patrol apprehended more than 200,000 migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, the highest total this year. Now, Biden, who promised that there would not be another foot of border wall built, he's now, well, he's kind of doing that that shuffle. He says, I'll answer one question on the border wall. The border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. Um, There's nothing under the law that I could use this money for, so I'm going to go ahead and spend it, even though the border wall, I don't believe it works. So his answer is, I'm the president of the United States, and I'm a potted plant. I, I can't. The money was appropriated by con- by Congress for the border wall. It can't be used for anything else. So I'm going to go ahead and spend it on building the border wall. But it don't don't say that I'm in favor of the border wall. Well, I mean, of course, the obvious comment on this, first of all, is number one, Mr. President, you you could choose not to build it. You could just not use the money. Heaven forbid, a politician who decides not to spend money. You know, it's like, okay, if I got to use it on a border wall, I don't believe in the border wall. Fine, we're not going to spend it. But that's not what Biden did. Biden went ahead and said, well, I don't believe in this, but yet he's going to go ahead and build it. But it's even more complicated than that because you cannot just build the border wall. In order to build the border wall, you need to have various waivers. You need to have waivers of, well, here's the estimate, 26 federal laws. So to move ahead with the construction, Homeland Security Secretary, the Homeland Security Secretary has waived 26 federal laws, including requirements around environmental protection, safe drinking water, clean air, and endangered species. Okay, so Biden says, well, I don't believe in this. I have nothing to do with it. The money has to be spent on a wall, but I, I still don't think it's a good idea. But yet he's directing his director of Homeland Security to waive all these different federal laws to make sure that this happens. You want to talk about talking about out of both sides of your mouth. This is exactly it. Let's understand what's going on here. Biden recognizes, number one, that the borders have gotten out of control during his tenure. Number two, he recognizes, as do most people, that border walls in some areas can help stem the flow. Look, when, when Trump talked about building the wall all along the Texas-Mexico border, I was one of the people that rolled my eyes. I, I felt that, okay, you know, what he really should be doing is using that, you know, term is sort of a not talking necessarily about a, a, a in the literal sense of here we're going to build walls because there's some areas of the border it doesn't make any sense to build walls but rather he was speaking figuratively of we need to have this wall and sometimes the wall might be a physical wall other times it might be electronic surveillance and those types of things that that's the way i think he should have approached it instead of saying we're going to construct this whole thing but for joe biden to turn around and say i don't think fences i don't think border walls play any role in discouraging people for coming in, I think that is equally ridiculous. And Biden must think it's ridiculous because you see him, you see him now saying, well, I don't think this is going to work, but yes, 
We're going to take the money and we're going to build it. And he's going to hope it works because he understands that this is a huge political liability because he has lost control of the southern border. And he understands that this is creating a crisis, not just in border states like it did before, but now it's creating a crisis all across the country because it's sort of a share the wealth thing. You have governors in some of these border states who are tired of having to deal with this problem on their own. And so now they're taking people who come into this country illegally and they're sending them to Chicago and they're sending them to New York and they're sending them to Los Angeles and they're sending them to Washington, D.C. And all the mayors there are freaking out because now they have to deal with just a fraction of the problem that the people in Texas or Arizona have to deal with. Oh, my gosh, we just got, you know, a thousand you know people who came into the country illegally. They just came into our streets. How are we going to deal with them? Well, OK, that's a fair question. But explain to the people in El Paso who have to deal with thousands of people who come in on a daily basis. So Biden is in a lot of trouble on this issue. He deserves to be in trouble on this issue, and he's a hypocrite on this particular issue. What he should say is, you know, things are bad at the border, and, you know, things have been getting worse, and what we need to do is we take need to take measures to try to, to, try to def- delay the flow of this. And we're not going to build a giant border wall that goes from, you know, coast to coast, but we are going to target the areas where the problem is the greatest, and we are going to do everything we can to discourage people from coming into this country illegally, and that includes building the border walls. And, of course, the reason he can't say that is because there's a lot of people in his party and a lot of his supporters who really, while they won't say it, they believe in open borders. They don't believe we should have any limitations at all, and they believe it's the problem of people in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and things like that. So as less unless it becomes a problem in Chicago or New York or Washington or L.A., they don't care about that. But Biden recognizes that what he's been doing has been a complete and total failure. Not one more foot of border wall. Yeah, right. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Somebody texts well, your politicians change their mind all the time. No, th- this isn't changing his mind. See, that's that's the ultimate hypocrisy of this. Okay, the border is out of control. He says we're not going to build one more foot of wall, but but yet they're, they're building the wall. So his answer is, I don't think this works, but I've got the money. It's appropriated for this, so we have to spend it. Well, he could kill this. It's it's He could kill it if he chose. His the Department of Homeland Security is waiving 26 federal laws to get this done. And if he really thought it was a waste, well, then just don't spend the money. Heaven forbid that Congress might not spend money. But the truth of it is Biden wants to have his cake and eat it, too. He recognizes that his policies on the border have been an absolute, complete disaster. So what he needs to do, all right, let's try building this wall. We've got this money spent. Let's do it. It can't hurt. But yet he doesn't want to, again, acknowledge the fact that, okay, maybe we're going to try this because we need some sort of break. Just, just say it. I mean, that's... That's the hypocrisy of this entire thing. Hey, I want to take a segment, and I I want to revisit something that we talked about on yesterday's program because it has generated a huge response, emails to me, comments to me, and uh, texts and things like that. And I just want to revisit it because it is an important decision. And if if you turn on the television set or you listen to radio or you go online to different, like, web sources, you will be bombarded 
with advertisements talking about um, different different health insurance plans, Medicare or Medicare Advantage plans or or whatever, um, because the open enrollment season starts, I think, October 15th, I believe, is when it starts. So what, what you have to understand is this this is one of these areas where I honestly – I honestly think the government does a bad job. Can you imagine that? The government doing a bad job in explaining people's options to them. And it is a very, very important decision. And I'm really, really concerned that people make very, very important decisions based on, hey, I saw this ad or I got this book in the mail or, or whatever, without understanding the, the, the real ramifications of this. So it, just a, a real quick you know, primer on these issues. You have in this in the country now, you have Medicare that people are eligible for when they turn 65. And there's Medicare Part A, which is hospitalization. Everybody can sign up for that. And Part B, which is your, your basic you know, other medical care coverage. Now, there's two ways you can go about this. You can sign up with original Medicare. And what happens is there's X, the government takes X out, um, out of um, X amount of money out of your Social Security payment, or if you're not on Social Security, you get billed every three months, and you pay for your basic Medicare. Um, That covers, generally speaking, about 80% of the costs. So what people who have Medicare do, mostly, is they will go and they will buy a supplement through a private insurance company, and they'll pay however much they pay, 150 bucks, whatever it might be, it all depends, Um, and that private supplement will make up the difference that, you know, that if, if Medicare covers 80%, it'll make up the other 20%. And there might be some other advantages and things that come in as well. So that's one way that you can go. Then there's the Advantage plans. They call it Medicare Advantage, but it's really not It's not really Medicare. What it is is it's private insurers who are offering health care coverage, and they're sanctioned and approved by the government. So that Medicare payment that you make, that money that comes out of your Social Security check or you get billed for every month or whatever, instead of using it to go to the government to pay for the Medicare, what you do is it goes to a private insurance company with this Medicare Advantage. And there's lots of people that do this. You hear all these Medicare Advantage plans that are being offered, and they'll offer you things in essentially, hey, we, you do, you'll, you'll get everything that's going to be covered so you don't need to fool with supplements and things like this. And so those are the two choices that are out there. Now, there's pluses and minuses of, of both. If you have a Medicare plan, you can go to any doctor in the country that takes Medicare, all right? So that, that that's a plus. If you're in an Advantage plan, you're pretty much tied into doing somebody in your network, and it, it might be great. So that, that might be all you need. I'm just saying that there are differences in these things. Also, the, the co-pays and things like that are, are different. And you have to look at all this stuff. I don't advocate whether or not somebody should be in Medicare or whether somebody should have an Advantage plan. That's completely up to individuals, and it's based on your financial situation, and it's based on your health situation and prescription drugs, all those type of things. But it's a big decision because once you make that decision, sometimes it's very difficult to go back. For example, if you know you don't sign up for Medicare, instead you go with the Advantage plan, and then you decide later on you want to get over to Medicare for whatever reason, it's, it's not easy to do. And there's penalties and there's things like that. So I'm just pointing out that these are big decisions that make. And, and you have to 
My advice is, and if you take nothing away from the last three hours of this program, if you are coming up on this, or you've got parents who are coming up on this, or you've got grandparents who are coming up on this, it's important to figure this out because it's really, really complicated. And there's all sorts of stuff that's out there. And what might be right for you isn't necessarily right for me and vice versa. So what you really need to do is you need to find some independent advisor and say, okay, look, this is my situation what is the best for me? And then figure this out and make the decisions on costs and coverage and stuff like that because it's an important decision. And you know, the ads are great because they can alert you to the things that are out there. But especially with open enrollment season coming up, you really need to do yourself a favor and you know and learn about this. And it is extremely complicated. And find somebody who really you know knows what they're doing because you. You don't want to make a mistake, whatever that might be. You don't want to overpay for stuff. You don't want to pay for stuff that you don't need. But at the same time, you don't want to get into a system where, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that if I wanted to see this particular doctor, I wouldn't be able to see that doctor. Or if I wanted to go to the Mayo Clinic for this procedure, I wouldn't be able to go to the Mayo Clinic for this procedure. And, again, it's all it's it's all different. Everybody's going to be different, but you want to find somebody you can trust who can really explain those differences to you and then make the decision as to what's best. Just a word to the wise. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Yeah, a lot of people weighing in on the whole Medicare thing. And some people say, oh, my plan lets me do this. That, that That's great. And, and that's that's fine. That's why that is my point, that all the plans are different and some require underwriting if you want to go from one to another. And sometimes there's waiting. Just know what you're doing. That, that's all. And, you know, if you're happy with that, then, then go with it. Um, there's nothing wrong with that but like i say what's right for you might not be right for me and vice versa so just educate yourself because these are important decisions that people are going to make all right the world of politics here is the here is the story now we spend a lot of time talking about the republican presidential primary because of course You've got Donald Trump, who is the elephant, no pun intended, in the room, who at least at this point in time is dominating the polls. I understand. I am on record as saying I do not think he is going to be the Republican nominee. And I know some people just roll their eyes and say, no, that's not going to happen. Well, I mean, time will tell about that. We spend a lot of times talking about the alternatives to, to Donald Trump. And we did a segment, for example, yesterday about how I believe it's, it is way past time to vote of the Five or six or seven people that are still running for president, it, it's it's time to vote a whole bunch of them off the island. Because if you want to see an alternative to Donald Trump, you have to, you, you can't have these debates where you've got seven people that are out there. Mike Pence, you can like him or not, but he's got no chance of being the next president of the United States. Um, same thing is true with Chris Christie. Same thing is true with Ramaswamy. And it's time for them to just exit, you know, stage left. And let the candidates who really have a chance, let them start to, again, show up as the alternative to, to Donald Trump. So I, I think you got to vote them off the island. And we talk a lot about what's going on on the Republican side. I want to talk about the other side of the aisle. And we talked about you know Joe Biden earlier and his flip-flop on the wall. Here's the story that appears the other day in the Wall Street Journal. Democrats still publicly back Biden for 2024. Privately, their fears are growing. 
Polls show warning signs for the incumbent, but few Democrats see a viable plan B. Publicly, top Democrats say they support President Biden running for re-election, and they think he can win. Privately, their worries are increasing, but they are resigned to the idea that he isn't going anywhere and there is no viable plan B. Polls have consistently shown that most voters, including the majority of Democrats, don't think Biden should run in 2024. And many have deep concerns about an eight, about the 80-year-old president's age, fitness for office, and leadership. The fears have intensified as his approval ratings have declined. Recent NBC News poll showed Biden with a job approval rating of 41%, with 56% disapproving. Um, so then there's the other poll that's out there, the one that ABC had last week that showed that in a head-to-head matchup, Biden loses to Trump by nine points. Now, I think that's a bit of an outlier, but there's no question that, that Joe Biden, at least if you believe the polls, is in, in deep trouble. And yet there doesn't appear to be anybody out there right now who is talking about manning, mounting a serious challenge. All right, I am on record as saying I don't think Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. And I know, like I say, a lot of you disagree with me. I don't think Biden is going to be the Democrat nominee. I think I think that there is going to be somebody else. And I think that in November of 2024, the election is going to look a lot different than it does now. Our number is 855-616-1620. Here is my question. Do you believe Joe Biden will be will be on the ballot as a Democratic candidate for president in 2024, or will it be someone else? 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I think it's going to be someone else. I will explain why in a moment, but I want your reaction as well. Is it going to be Biden for sure? And for those of you out there who are inclined to vote for somebody other than a Republican, how do you feel about the notion that it would be Biden? Would you like to have somebody else as a choice? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. All right. Um, it, it's sort of this, it's one of these emperors has new clothes, no clothes sort of things. You've got, you know, Joe Biden, who right now running essentially unopposed for the Democratic nomination. And yet most Democrats just don't think he should be running for president. But nobody's willing to emerge and, and challenge him at this point in time. Nobody wants to take on the emperor in this regard. And I, I think actually I'm just convinced that Joe Biden is not going to be the Democratic nominee a year from now. Okay, what do you think? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Stephen in Whitefish Bay. Hi, Stephen. How's it going, Jeff? Thanks for having me on. Good. What do you think? Um, I'm The fact that Gavin Newsom is debating somebody, I mean, he's not even a candidate. I think they're positioning him to at least be the, the backup plan. And I think he has a relationship with um, Kamala Harris as well, too, where I think if he were to leapfrog that position, it might be doable. I also am a lifelong Democrat, and I tell my Republican friends, I'm like, can I have anyone but Donald Trump? I will vote for Nikki Haley. If you told me, if I vote for Nikki Haley, that she's the president of the United States, and that guarantees that I don't have to sit through four more years of Donald Trump, I would do it in a second. And the way she's positioned herself on the right-to-life issue, I can see her sort of trending towards gathering some of those um, centrist Democrats as well, too. What do you think? Well, Stephen, here's what I – thanks for the call. I'll give you my answer. I mean, here's what – 
should scare Democrats um, is moving forward if you want to retain the White House. And that is, I, I think a lot of people out there think, okay, Donald Trump is not electable. I think Donald Trump isn't electable. So if you put Biden up there, he's going to beat Donald Trump because at the end of the day, you know, Trump isn't going to be able to, you know, win those states that he needs to win. And keep in mind, it's not a national election. You know, are people who didn't vote for him in 2020, are they going to suddenly now start voting for him? You know, is Donald Trump going to be able to win Wisconsin? Is Donald Trump going to be able to win Michigan? The states that he needs to win in order to win the White House. And and I can understand where you might say, okay, you know, doesn't matter. It's it's not so much people voting for Joe Biden. It's that they're not going to vote for Trump, which is, I think, a, a microcosm of what happened in 2016. There were people who, I don't know that they were excited about voting for Trump, but they didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. So they either voted for Trump or they stayed home, and that allowed Trump to win. It was kind of the reverse effect of that in, in 2020. So, I mean, I understand where Democrats could say, okay, if, you know, we understand where, where the polls are, we understand what's been going on in the economy and all these different things, that's okay. But what we're going to do is, as long as Trump is the nominee, it doesn't matter who it is. Might as well be Biden as anybody else. He, he's going to win. I get that. Here's the problem, and here's, I think, what, what, what should, if you're a Democrat and you want to see the Democrats continue to control the, the presidency, what, what happens if, if I'm right? What happens if Trump isn't the nominee? What happens if, to your point, Stephen, a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott or a Ron DeSantis or whatever? What happens if somebody that is not Trump emerges. Let's use the example of Nikki Haley, because I think she's the one that's rising in the polls now. So now you have somebody who is conservative, but maybe more centrist, who female, female voters like to vote for other females. That's just, if you look at any sort of statistical underpinning, that that's what you'll find. So you, you have somebody who is conservative, but doesn't have the baggage, for example, that Donald Trump has. And now you've got somebody who's like 25 years younger than Biden, et cetera. So there are choices for the independent voters or the conservative leaning or the more moderate Democrats. There's an alternative that they have. And all these people who are now saying, well, I wouldn't vote for Trump, but I have real concerns about electing somebody who's like 82 years old. It will be 82 years old at the time. I've got all these concerns. Now I have an alternative who's not Trump. And if if you're too deep into this and, and Biden has been the choice, well, OK, there's no alternative. If that is how this all plays out, I can easily, easily see somebody having that conversation with Joe Biden, and we have and we see a, a speech not unlike we saw in uh, the 1968 presidential election when Lyndon Johnson, who was running for re-election, but was starting to get battered because of you know what was going on in Vietnam, at some point in time, his advisors went to him and said, Mr. President, we don't think you can win re-election. And you know, Johnson came out and then gave this speech where he said, you know, he's talking about Vietnam, and at the end of it, he gave the speech saying, and I have decided that, you know, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. And he just, I mean, kind of bailed on that. I can see Biden doing something like that if, if it becomes apparent that, okay, he's going to be running against somebody dramatically younger who's not named Trump. And, and don't be surprised if that, in fact, happens. Now, it might take a lot of arm twisting to do that. But there's people around there who I think could be doing the arm twisting. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Andrew in Waukesha. Hi, Andrew. 
thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I, I really wish that this discussion would deal with the reality of the situation. You know, RFK Jr. recently spoke about this in a podcast. Bernie Sanders sued the DNC because they obviously rigged both primaries when he ran against Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. And what the federal courts told Bernie Sanders was, too bad, so sad, it's a private club. They get to choose whoever we want, whoever they want. You know, the, the Democratic National, uh, the, the Democrat Party has superdelegates. What that means is that when they have their national convention, there is a bunch of insiders and political donors who basically get to choose and decide at the convention who the nominee is despite. And this is the, this is the operative question. Forget the polls. Forget the votes. Despite what the people may vote for, the Democratic Party can choose whoever they want. Okay. So why are we speculating? Why don't we just talk about the process? Well, because I I guess the the bottom line is who do you, who right now, the the choice is pretty clearly, there's no alternatives out there to Joe Biden. Do you think that there is going to be a change or do you think Biden's going to be the nominee? I think he's going to be the nominee. I think he'll maybe if if this, you know, concocted scheme with all the insiders is to somehow supplant Joe Biden as president, they'll just pick a new vice president that will run in his stead. Yeah. Well, but I, he will be the nominee at the convention. Yeah, okay. Thanks for calling. You you may you may very well be right if I I think if again, if if the Republican nominee is somebody other than Trump, don't be surprised. See, that's. I think next year is going to be such a fascinating year. I, I think next year, from a political perspective, I think it's going to rival 1968, which was, I think, the most certainly the most interesting political year in my life. I think 2024 will rival that. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Well, Commander is heading to Delaware. Commander. Not the Washington Commanders football team that plays the Chicago Bears tonight. Nope. President Biden's dog, Commander, no longer living at the White House. Why? Because just like Joe Biden can't control the southern border, he apparently cannot control his dog. President Biden's dog, Commander, is no longer living in the White House after a series of biting incidents involving staff members and Secret Service personnel, according to a spokeswoman for the First Lady. Um, let's see. The dog is no longer living with the first family. Commander is not presently in residence on the White House campus while the next steps are evaluated, uh, the statement says. The move came days after Commander, a two-year-old German shepherd, bit a Secret Service officer. It was the 11th episode of aggressive behavior by the president's pets, many of them involving Commander and the officers and agents who protect the president. One of Mr. Biden's other dogs, Major, was sent to live away from the White House soon after the president took office because of what was described at the time as a biting incident with a White House staff member. Um, let's see. In the statement, they said the president and the first lady care deeply about the safety who, of those who work at the White House and those who protect them every day. I guess, except when it comes to their dogs biting them. Um, they didn't say where Commander was currently living or when he might return to the White House. Um, internal emails show that uh, there's been at least 10 instances of aggressive behavior by the president's pets. In one of those episodes, an agent was left shaken when Commander began barking at him from the top of the White House staircase. He felt the need to hoist the chair he was sitting on to use as a shield. 
in July after another episode involving Commander. Um, the Secret Service said, well, sometimes it's unavoidable for the agents to be in close quarters with the pets. After Commander bit a Secret Service officer late last month, the dog was allowed to remain at the White House. Um, at the time, they blamed the dog's behavior on the stress of living in the White House. So it's a stressful situation, so that's why the dog's going to bite different people and stuff. Look, I, I wish I wish Commander a long and happy life, but it is one of those kind of things where you'd think that after the dog has bitten somebody for the first or the second time, maybe maybe you need to remove the dog, either get the dog under control, or if you can't do that, maybe you need to put the dog in a different sort of environment. And maybe Delaware is a lot quieter than trying to live at the White House, but you can't have the dogs biting Secret Service agents. Can you?